as you all have uh, now, how long, how long have you been here, Owen? Two, two years? He and Amanda, as you've, uh, I'm sure you've figured it out by now. Um, there's some people who uh, are, are flashy, uh, catch your attention easily, uh, and then sometimes, uh, the longer you get to know that person, the shine sort of wears off. And I, I, I'm sure after two years, I don't have to tell you, Owen is one of those people uh, that it's the other way around. Now, it's not that he's not flashy. Hey, he's a good-looking guy. Uh, right, Amanda? He's a really good-looking guy. And he was uh, just one of the best students I've ever had. And yet, the more you're around him and the more you get to know him, you start to discover it, there's even more there than you thought. And that's not that common. And so... Um, I'm so glad he's here. Uh, I've had this relationship with you uh, for um, 20 years, 19, 20 years, and I, I've had the relationship. What year did you all graduate? 2004. 2004. Uh, so just about uh, as long, and I couldn't be happier that uh, you all found each other. Now we're uh, back to First Peter. Uh, I'm still in verse 1. <laughs> so I've got a little, little distance to go, but uh, if, if you think, look at me and say, well, he doesn't look too worried. You're right. I'm not too worried. We'll, we'll do something, I hope, that's worthwhile. So as we finished the earlier time today, uh, we were in this opening section, which is, I think, critical for understanding the rest of the letter. Because here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he identifies them. He, he provides for his audience uh, some identity markers. And the first identity marker he provides is that they are the elect they are chosen by God and that's going to be something that I think uh, Peter believes is important for them as they face this time they live in a world that is not really their home where they feel out of step where there's some pressure uh, to behave like everyone else and yet their Christian conviction leads them to act in a different way and because of that they're treated with hostility, they're alienated, they're slandered and there's even more of that on the horizon for them, even more severe persecution coming. And so in those circumstances it's important to know who you are and who they are, they are God's elect and so are you if you are a part of his people. You are chosen by God. The second term he uses is also in this verse 1. It sits right next to it. Uh, we might use the term exile. Uh, I might prefer, I would prefer the term refugee. But your translation will have anything from exile, stranger, temporary resident, foreigner, alien, or sojourner. It'll use one of those terms to describe this reality. Here's the reality it's trying to describe. Someone who is living in a place that is not their home. Somewhere who's living in a land and their citizenship is somewhere else. Now they find themselves in a land that is not their own, that is not their home. Now this is a consistent theme in the New Testament. It, it, that This is what believers are in the world. Um, it, we might think that before there were social security numbers and identity, uh, sort of identity badges that you could wear, that there wouldn't be refugees, there wouldn't be immigrants like we have in our own time. But that's absolutely not the case. Uh, for as long as re history has been recorded, people have left the place where their identity was rooted and gone to other places. And often finding it unwelcoming in the new land. And that is precisely the metaphor that Peter keeps using for our life in the world as God's people. 
The reality is the typical Christian experience, the typical experience of God's people in the world has almost always been lived away from home. Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul picks up on this. He says, For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, same theme, Hebrews 11, 13 and 14. After he's talked about a number of people who are people of great faith, the hall of fame of faith, he says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised yet. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents, or I might say immigrants and refugees. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Should it really surprise us? that the typical experience of the people of God would be one lived away from home. Think about Abraham, Father Abraham. Here's sort of the, we want to go back, we say, here's the beginning of the nation of Israel, and here is our spiritual forefather. And what is God's first communication with him? In Genesis chapter 12, he tells him to leave his homeland, the place of his citizenship, and go to a land that is not his own. Abraham became an immigrant. We might not think of it that way, but that's precisely what he becomes. He became an immigrant. He left his homeland, and he went to a land that was not his home. That God would, He didn't even tell him where he was going. He just to be a wanderer, an immigrant, a refugee. And, and his life will be marked by that longing for a homeland that he never really finds. And, and then you think about the experience of God's people, Israel. Where do they find themselves even at the end of the book of Genesis? In Egypt. And then at the beginning of Exodus, they are enslaved there. They are immigrants. They are refugees. And of course, God brings them up out of that. And they wander in the wilderness. And they finally make it to their homeland. And we see that in the book of Joshua. But what will happen in their not-too-distant future? They will be carried away into Assyrian exile. Living their lives as God's people away from their homeland. What will happen during the Babylonian invasion of 586? The Jewish people would be carried away to a land that is not their home. They are exiles in that land, living out their experience as God's people. And then even when they are allowed to return to their homeland, they will do so and they will be under Greek rule and they will be under Roman rule. They are immigrants in their own land where they don't have control they pay taxes to a foreign government. This is the experience of God's people in the world. And we might even point to Jesus. Maybe the greatest act of immigration in the history of creation is the incarnation. When Jesus, who existed at all times, there was not a time when he was not, but not in human flesh, not as a human being, but when he takes upon himself human flesh, he has immigrated from heaven to dwell among human beings. It is the greatest act of immigration. And now he is living his experience as a human being away from his home. And by age two, he literally becomes a refugee as because of Herod the Great's decree, he has to, the family leaves uh, Palestine, Israel, and goes to Egypt for two years. He is a refugee. Who are we in the world? We are immigrants, 
we are refugees. And the moment we begin to believe that this world is our home, and we learn how to live in this world and to get along and to be successful by the way the world measures success and by the way the world attains that success, well, now we're no longer immigrants and refugees. Now we've made this world our home. I used to say to students, I don't know that I ever said this uh, to Owen. I think, Owen, we translated First Peter in Greek. If I didn't say it, I meant to or thought it. But I've always taught First Peter and this idea that we're immigrants and we're refugees. And then look at the experience of Christians in America for over 200 years. Has our experience been one of being immigrants and refugees? I would say no. Quite the opposite. The founding of the United States and the 200 plus years since has been an, experience, an experiment of religious freedom where it's not difficult to be a Christian in the United States. We're made to feel very comfortable for the better part of 200 years. We felt like this world is our home. We've not known persecution. We've not known alienation. We've not known hostility. In fact, it's been a benefit to be a citizen of the United States and to identify with the church, with Christianity. We have received benefit from that for the better part of 200 years. I'm not sure we've known the experience of Peter's readers. His audience, when he says you're immigrants, you're refugees in the world, they knew it. They were experiencing it. They were being alienated and treated with hostility and pushed to the margins, and it would even get worse for them. Peter's in an experience where he will give his life because of his identification with Christ. That's not been the experience, particularly of white Protestants in the United States for 200 years. So can we identify with this immigrant, refugee, exile, sojourner imagery? We just have to really spiritualize it somehow, but we've not known it in reality. Now that's what I've said for 20-some years of teaching First Peter, that we don't really know this experience like they knew it. And we still don't know it today, but there are signs that indicate to me that things are changing in our culture in the United States such that we are on a continuum that is leading towards alienation and hostility for those who identify with Christianity now you can identify with Christianity and take no stands that conflict with the way the world thinks you can give up your Christian convictions and get along very well and be called a Christian and no one's going to treat you with hostility or alienation but if we choose to continue to be God's people in this world and to live by biblical, convictional Christianity, then all the signs are on the horizon that we may very soon know precisely the experience that Peter's audience knew. And, and you can see it in a variety of ways. It's more than just anecdotal, that you're made to feel some... Um, alienation or you're made to feel an outsider because of some position you hold or maybe you're just nervous about even speaking out a position you hold because it seems to run contrary to to the, to the mainstream of American life but even in the numbers 
uh, the Pew Research Center did a massive study of religion in America from between 2006 and 2014. They surveyed about 35,000 Americans and asked them questions about their religious convictions and their identity as Christians in the world. And it's a long survey, and there's a lot to say about it, and I'm only going to say this. The, the result of all that was over that period of time from 2006 to 2014. They found this shift in numbers. Those who identified as Christian dropped from 78% to 70% over that period of time. Now, this is Pew Research. This is no kind of fake news. Uh, and... It surveyed 35,000 people over a a, a period of time. This is as good as you're going to get. Those American citizens who checked the box Christian fell from 78 to 70% over that period of time. The lowest, to my knowledge, of any poll of American citizens who identified with Christianity since polling has been done, 70%. Now, I know that's still a massive number. But 70% is the lowest, and it dropped 8%. Those who identified as none, that is, they checked the box, no religious affiliation, rose from 16 to 22%. Now, what's happening? In my mind, this is not the end of Christianity. Uh, Christianity's dying in America, something like that. Quite the opposite. Ed Stetzer, who's at Wheaton now, who was head of LifeWay Research, uh, did some thorough analysis of beyond just the, the face of the numbers. And I agree with his determination that this indicates not a dying of Christianity of America, but a clarifying of Christianity in America. That for over 200 years, America has been filled with cultural Christians. People who identify with Christianity because it's easy, because it's beneficial, because it helps you in some way in the world. It's easy to check the box, or it has been, Christian. But as it becomes more difficult, as there's a price to pay, you'll have people not checking the box, Christian. They'll feel free and even the desire to move into the none, no religious affiliation. So are we losing Christians? Absolutely not. What we're doing is clarifying Christianity. Who are the genuine believers? Who are those who are committed to Christ in such a way that even if it's not culturally comfortable, they will continue to identify as Christian and live by their convictions? So we're losing the middle. Those cultural Christians, not convictional Christians, not biblical Christians, cultural Christians. Those who just identify with Christianity because it's beneficial to them. And when the benefit is lost, they'll check the none. And that's what we see happening. So in Stetzer's words, here's what's happening for Christianity. We're losing our home field advantage that we've had for over 200 years. What does that mean? That means that more and more we will begin to understand what it means to be an immigrant, to be a refugee, to be people whose home and citizenship is not in this world but in another world, and we will long for it more and more. And we will know the experience of the audience of 1 Peter. So now I'm saying something I've not said in 21 years, that we are moving in a direction 
where 1 Peter might become one of the most important documents for us as believers in the world. Because it helps us see how we are to live when we are treated with hostility and alienation and persecution. Here's how to live our lives as immigrants and refugees in a world that is not our home. And as I know who I am, as I understand my identity, I am chosen of God, I am the elect, God chose me. And I am a refugee in a world that is not my home. As I come to understand who I am and where I'm going, I will live differently. I will love differently. I will suffer differently if I know who I am. And to such people, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, that's the opening of 1 Peter. So if I spend an hour and a half on that, we'll get through this sometime in 2020. That's not an hour. I mean, the year 2020, not sometime tonight before midnight. Now let's look back at the text. The opening we just covered, now verses 3 through 12 marks a doxology, a giving of praise to God. There's often a thanksgiving section here. Here it is praise to God. And it starts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has birthed us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, leading to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. You who are being kept by the power of God through faith, leading to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in which you now rejoice, if it is necessary for a little while, having suffered in various trials, in order that the testing of your faith, more precious than the testing of gold, which is destroyed, But when your faith is tested by fire, it is found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, although you've not seen, you love, whom also now not seeing, you believe, and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Concerning which salvation, the prophets who prophesied concerning the grace which was coming to you, sought out and searched, investigating carefully into who or when the, 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 spirit, the things revealed by the Spirit of Christ, who was indicating by predicting the sufferings coming to Christ and the glories to follow, to whom it was revealed that not for themselves, but for you, they were ministering these things, the things which were announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven, into which angels longed to look. So here is a section of giving praise and glory to God. It begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he points out, The primary thing for which he gives praise is we have experienced a new birth. Look at it again there in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has birthed us unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He has birthed us anew. He has given us a new birth. Now, does that remind you of another New Testament writer? The Gospel of John, in chapter 3, when he has a discussion with Nicodemus, and he ends up saying to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless you're born anew, you can't even see the kingdom. And there's that born-again language that John uses. And now Peter refers to it. He gives praise to God because of this new birth that we've experienced. And my first question about that, whenever I read this, and I sort of sound a bit like Nicodemus at this point. He was the one in John 3 that said, born again? How's that going to happen? I'm an old man. I can't even, I can hardly get out of bed in the morning. How am I going to fold myself up and get back in my mother's womb so I can be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. But this whole language of a new birth, on the face of it, what's what's there to give praise to God about that? I mean, do you remember your birth? Now, I asked Dale in the Sunday school time, did he remember his spiritual birth? And he did. He could remember it. He was 13, just not many years ago. So he can remember it clearly. But do you remember your physical birth? Now, if you tell me you do, I want to talk to you afterwards. I want to get your recollection of that day when your mother's water broke and and she gave birth to you. I think it's absolutely by God's providence that none of us can remember that experience. It would have to be one of the most traumatic moments in all of human existence. You think about that. And when I do, I think of this little phrase, it might be cozy in the womb, but it ain't easy getting out. In fact, the skull gets bent and contorted and mashed so much so that by God's providence, the newborn infant's skull is soft so it can bend and, and, and twist along with that process of being birthed. Is there any wonder that a baby comes out screaming and crying and hoping to get a refund from the whole experience? (laughs) I think not. So what's the good news about all this? The good news is this new birth is about wholesale transformation. Whereby we move from death to life. We were in a grave largely of our own making maybe with an assist to Adam. But we've been given new life, like a new birth. The result of this rebirth is complete transformation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away, and all things become new. He explains the the beauty of this new birth further in verse 3 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, the basis for this new birth is God's great mercy. The word he uses here for mercy is a word that's often translated in the Hebrew Bible. It's a good Hebrew word, and and I won't throw a lot of Hebrew words at you, but here's a good one. I have to swallow hard because you got to say it like this. Chesed. Chesed. 
That's the word. That's the Hebrew word. Now, it doesn't sound so beautiful because it's very guttural and you, it's like you're coughing up a hairball, but it's a beautiful word in meaning. It is a word that speaks of God's steadfast love, of God's covenant faithfulness, of God's grace, of God's mercy. When he says this new birth is according to God's great mercy, he means it is not earned, it is not deserved, and it is not to be expected. Now, the basis of this new birth is, on the one hand, God's great mercy. And the word great there probably highlights just what a predicament we were in. God's great mercy. It's by virtue of God's great mercy that we experience this new birth. That's the basis of it. But after he, he says it, he speaks another basis of it. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth on the one hand is according to God's grace mercy. This new birth on the other is brought about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is new birth. It is life now according to God's great mercy. But it's also life beyond Life after death. This new birth means not only something for the present time, but it means something for the future time. It is a total transformation from death to life in the present and in the future. When we close our eyes for the last time in this earthly sojourn, this earthly exile, we know there is life beyond through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what does all this provide for us? There in verse 3, a living hope. In your experience of alienation, in your experience of hostility, in your experience of persecution, in your experience of suffering, because of the new birth and because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we can find hope. A living hope, not a dead hope. There are people walking around outside these walls today and maybe someone walked inside this building today and you can't see it normally from the outside but it's like dawn of the living dead because they've lost hope and when we lose hope our bones start to dry up and it's as if we're still walking around and still living but we're dead people walking. Life without hope is indescribably painful and depressing. And there are people all over this world, in this community, who are the walking dead without hope in this world. And when they do talk about hope, hope is refer refers to things that have no basis, have no lasting value. Oh, we hear people say things like, I hope the weather's nice tomorrow. And I'm thinking, on what basis would you have such a hope? This is Oklahoma. Bruce has got his short sleeve shirt on today because he hoped it was going to be a nice warm day when he came out and he's rubbing his arms that it was cold. I hoped Kentucky would win the national championship. I need say nothing more about the basis of that hope on an 18-year-old young man who goes 7 of 19 from the free throw line, missed more free throws than any player in Kentucky history has ever missed on Thursday night. My hope 
was in that 18-year-old whose girlfriend may have broken up with him the night before, whose parents may have been trying to get tickets for the whole family and he couldn't come up with them. Who knows what that 18-year-old was going through the day of that game? And my hopes in him? I hope that Luke, my son, makes a 32 on the ACT. Now, there's obvious reasons I would hope such a thing. He may decide he'd like to go somewhere other than OBU, and if that were the case, he's going to need a 32 on his ACT. Now, what's my, the basis of my hope for that? Let me tell you just a little bit about Luke. I'm glad he's not here today. This would be harder if he were. I would say in this school year, beginning in August up till through spring break, that young man has spent at least three hours on his academics, on his study. I don't mean three hours a night. I mean three hours since August. A few times he's come in and said, man, I'm buried with homework tonight. All right. He goes and sits down at the table. I mean, you couldn't sneeze. He's back up. Well, what about all that homework? Oh, I'm finished. That was his nightmare night of homework. Ten minutes. He took the preview, you know, ACT. He's a sophomore. So he took a, a, a ACT practice preview. And since he didn't even tell me, I was talking to one of the counselors there, and they said something about it. So I quizzed him about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we took that. Well, let me know when you get that score. Now, that's been two months ago. I can't, I can't get him to even give me the practice ACT score. So now back to my statement. I hope that Luke makes a 32 in his ACT. And that hope is that then he could go just about anywhere he wanted to go to college and he could go on some sort of a scholarship that would be close to full ride, if not full ride. Right? That's my hope. You know what my real hope is? That tuition waiver I get at OBU as a result of teaching there. That's my real hope. <laughs> this living hope that he talks about here is something that's rooted in a faithful God and his mercy and the resurrection of his son from the dead. There's, no, there's nothing shaky about that, that basis. There's nothing uncertain about it. The goal of this new birth is a living hope, and it is a hope that is rooted in God's faithfulness. And when you start to see the world through the lens of the new birth, when you start to see the world through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus, now a world that can look dark and dim and hopeless, now you begin to see the world with hope when you look at it through the lens of the new birth. Uh, uh, Ellen Davis is an Old Testament scholar who teaches at a liberal arts college. She has a friend who also teaches in that college, and she teaches art. Now, the interesting thing about art in this particular college, an art class is required of every student who comes through this program. And so, this art teacher has large classes, but most of the students in there have very limited interest in art. They don't plan on doing art for any type of career. And the Old Testament teacher asked her, her friend, if this was frustrating for her to have to teach students who aren't that interested and who are only there because it's a required class. 
she said in response to that, she, she felt like there was still great work she could do. She says, my goal is to teach them a way to see the world so that they will never be bored again. If our living hope becomes the lens through which we view our lives and our experiences, our suffering, our whole world, then we will never be bored again because we've been born again. Even in our suffering, even if we experience persecution, even if we come to feel like exiles, immigrants, refugees, we will see beauty and hope. Isaiah 61 says this, To all who mourn, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And this new birth that he talks about provides for us a living hope, but also look in verse 4. It provides for us the hope of an inheritance that he says is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, which is kept in heaven for you. An inheritance. I would think you could say to your typical immigrant or refugee in wherever country they might be, you could meet them at the border and say, we have an inheritance for you here. And that would be beautiful words to an immigrant or a refugee. Not just we're going to give you something to help you at the present time. No, you have an inheritance here. And it's kept for you. And it cannot be taken from you. And it will not perish. It will not decay. It can't be touched. What greater promise could be given to an immigrant or to a refugee who's left their homeland who's left the place of their citizenship, who's left their inheritance behind to go to this new land to which they have no rights, no privileges, no citizenship. Here is the promise of inheritance. And it's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. And look at the language he uses to describe it. It's imperishable. That is, it is untouched by death. It is undefiled, that is, it is unstained by sin. It is unfading, that is, it is unaffected by time. Now you tell me about your inheritance. I don't mean your spiritual inheritance in heaven. I'm talking about your earthly inheritance. I'd like to know about what it is and how secure it is. What's your inheritance? What are you planning on for the future? What is it that you're hoping to leave behind for your children? How secure is it? Is it somehow based in the stock market? Is that secure? It might be something like a house or property. Well, that's something that decays. It, it might be rooted, your inheritance might be rooted in the whim of a parent or grandparent. You ever had a, maybe a grandparent or parent, maybe somewhat jokingly, maybe not, say, if you do that, I'm taking you out of the will. That doesn't sound very secure to me. What's the basis of the security of whatever your inheritance is, the thing you're counting on for the future? Just how secure is it? And I would say whatever it is, it can be, it can decay and it can be lost. But here is the promise of an inheritance 
that cannot be lost and that cannot and will not decay. It's being kept in heaven for you, he says. And then it gets better. He says in verse 5, For you, the ones who are being kept by the power of God through faith, not only is God keeping your inheritance, but God is keeping you. He's guarding your inheritance, but He's guarding you also. Now, let me tell you that the fact that we're being guarded by God does not mean that we're exempt from cancer. It does not mean that we're exempt from a shooter's bullet or bullets. It does not mean that we are exempt from paralyzing depression. It does mean that we will not be ultimately destroyed. And that whatever happens in this time of our immigration, God will vindicate us. We have this hope. We're being guarded by God. Now that doesn't mean we should just sit back and say, well, bring it up, whatever comes, bring it on, I'm safe and secure, I'll just sit down here and enjoy it. No, the Christian life still requires vigilance. He says in this letter in 113, gird up the loins of your mind. I don't know if you know the image of girding up the loins, but it's a very active image. How about strip away all evil and slander in chapter 2, verse 1? That doesn't sound like someone who's just sitting back enjoying, uh, waiting on the good things to come. How about abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul in chapter 2, verse 11? How about arm yourselves with the same attitude Christ had in chapter 4, verse 1? Doesn't that sound active? It sounds like we're in some sort of a battle. How about be alert, be on watch, for you have an enemy, the devil, who roams about like a roaring lion who wants to devour you. There is vigilance in the Christian life. But my hope is not rooted in my vigilance. God is not guarding me if I remain vigilant. God is guarding me, period. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, there's a beautiful image of exactly what I think he's talking about. That's that Passion Week scene where Jesus is sitting around at a meal with his disciples. And he's already predicted that one of them will betray him. And now he says, one of you will deny me three times. And of course, Peter says, oh, no, I would never do that. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you will. But I have prayed for you that after you have denied me, you will turn again. You will return. You will come back and you will strengthen your brothers. Now, you know how that plays out. Peter denied that he'd do it. There's no way. But when the pressure was on, when the heat was on, he couldn't guard himself. He said, no, I don't know him. I've never seen him. I don't have any connection with him. Just like Jesus had said. Now, fast forward. Was that the end? Was he destroyed ultimately? Look in Acts chapter 1. Just a few chapters you got, that's Luke 22, now in Acts chapter 1, the second volume of Luke's work, and Peter stands up. Oh, that's right, he's still part of the believers. 
He's still the leader of the 12. He stands up and he says, now here's what we got to do. we got to replace Judas and here's how we're going to do it. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus' prayer being fulfilled. I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. It's a shaking, violent image to shake you free from your faith. That roaring lion wants to devour your faith. But I prayed for you. And when it was done, Peter standing up among the twelve saying, here's what we're going to do. He's the one who preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 believe. That's what it means to be guarded by God. We may shake and we may quiver and we may come up short. But my security is not in my ability to guard myself. We are guarded by God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, I pray today we would find great hope and comfort in our new birth. I pray we would put our confidence in that hope, in an inheritance that you have for us that no one can take away and that time cannot fade. And I pray we would have our hope in your protection, in your guarding of our faith. If there's someone here today who does not know this experience of being born anew, who may feel dead inside, dried up, longing, searching, Father, I pray today, that they would respond to your woo, to your conviction of them, to your drawing them. I pray they would respond and they would experience new birth. In the name of Christ, amen.